Tommy Lorenzo. And this is the Pop Style Opinion Fest. Hello, kittens. Welcome back to another edition of the PSO. I am the T in your Tilo, Tom Fitzgerald. And I'm here with the low in your Tilo, Lorenzo Marquez, my lovely husband. Hello. How are you doing, Lorenzo? We're wonderful. Wonderful. We're very excited. We have yes. a fabulous podcast for you this week. We already know that because we've already recorded the bulk of it. We have a um, an interview with fashion journalist and author Amy O'Dell, whose book, Anna, the Biography, uh, New York Times bestseller. It's been on everybody's, you know, lips in the past month or so. <laughs> it's just a fantastic book uh, looking at the life and the career of Anna Winter. And we go deep with her. Yes, we do. On Anna's whole deal. Uh, the great thing about uh, this book and Amy's approach to it is that... Um, it's not some gossipy devil wears Prada right. sort of tome. It's full of idiosyncratic stories about Anna, some of which have hit the press in the last few weeks as the book was being promoted. But um, it's also a serious examination of her career and her standing in the culture and what she has accomplished and how singular a person she is. There just is right. nobody that's done what and, she's and done. Very interesting chapter is one on the Met Gala, her upbringing in London. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, so we're very excited. It's a great interview, and that is coming up in just a bit. Yeah. Uh, we just wanted to say hello, hello. To start off the podcast by saying <laughs> hello to all of you, and just talk about a little, uh, a few things that have caught our eye in the past couple of days. First up, they're related, actually, weirdly is um, the trailer for um, Andrew Dominic's film Blonde, based on the Joyce Carol Oates book about Marilyn Monroe. The teaser trailer do- uh, dropped with Anna de Armas portraying Marilyn. And there's been a lot of buzz about this movie, right. partially because I think Anna de Armas is a counterintuitive casting choice. I think a lot of people needed to see what that was going to look right. like. And also because... Um, well, the Joyce Carol Oates book is a very, uh, it is a fictional take on Marilyn's life. Uh, it's a critically acclaimed book. It won all sorts of prizes. And uh, I don't deny that it's a uh, feminist take because it looks at the world through Marilyn's eyes instead of looking at the world, looking at Marilyn. But it's also very obsessed with the tragedies of her life and very obsessed with the sexual, with her sex life. Right. So there's a there's a chance that this could be more salacious than... Then I would prefer to see in a Maryland biopic at the at, at this stage. However, um, uh, and the other controversy, slight controversy, is that they're going for an NC seventeen rating, which first off Netflix has never done. And in um, his his you know discussions about the film, promotions of the film, Dominic has made some fairly, I don't know controversial or <laughs> you know what i mean do yeah. you know which statements I, I mean he made it sound like there were some hardcore sex scenes in the film well it, which i'm not i'm not approved yeah, well, i don't care whatever but the question is are they necessary we'll, we'll find out uh, we'll find out all of this um certainly I, I think as a figure you sort of can't talk about marilyn without examining um her sexuality and and how she, it was you know she utilized it and also she in many ways she was victimized by it but it's such a huge part of her public persona and her private life that um you know you can't do an examination of her life without that being some form of focus right. on it however we've talked about this before uh when we talked about Kim Kardashian's taking that dress uh to the Met Gala which is our second story of the day but I've mentioned this before that um, certain stars 
classic stars, uh, it would be nice if latter, newer examinations of their already heavily examined lives didn't focus so much on... I've said this before about Judy Garland, about Marilyn Monroe. To a certain extent, it's true of someone like Joan Crawford. Can we talk about them at all without talking about the fucked up parts of their personal lives? Or is that the only thing we have to say anymore about these women who were all insanely talented, iconic women? You know what I mean? Like, do we have to talk about Judy Garland's pill popping? Do we have to talk about Marilyn's um, multiple strings of lovers or whatever? Is that the only story we have left to tell about these women? That's all I'm saying. No, I I agree. Uh, Well, this one is based on the book. And um, the book... Same title, right? Blonde. Uh, Joyce Carol Lynch, And yeah. the director already said that it's going to be sincere, made with love, but full of rage. He already said that the movie's going to be full of rage. So Typical. Yeah, I mean, if you focus on the, the, the darker aspects of Marilyn's life, that's how it's going to come out. Yeah. I do have... Uh, yeah, it's interesting because it looks like that's the new take now for biopics. It, it goes for like a more, not linear, but more... Impressionistic. Impression and more emotional experience like, type of thing. Yeah. Like Spencer, which... Um, I think they there was a lot of discussion, but I and some people got mad when the comparison was made. But when they showed the teaser trailer, I did think of the teaser trailer for Spencer, yes, where it was yeah. um, they just really give you a barely more than a split second of the actress in the role um, speaking a line, uh, just to give you enough of a taste to say. See, she is Marilyn. You can right, right, buy right. her as Marilyn. It was the same thing with Kristen Stewart as, as Princess Diana. Um, I mean, they do talk a lot about the movie being focused on um, the images that they look at a lot of at a lot of photographs, and and that's what the movie's based on. Or they slavishly recreated some of yeah, these photographs which... already, and I'm all already like, okay. I understand. Like, I, I can't. I can't badmouth the film right. I haven't seen. Of course, so it's pretty. But where's well, where's, where's uh, the, the only <laughs> thing is that when you get to this approach where you are just recreating photographs down to the detail, down to right. the pose and everything. First off, that's kind of drag more than it is acting. Number one. Number two. I, I, I get it. Marilyn was as much a public persona or more of a public persona than she was a private person. So I can understand wanting to unpack that public persona and wanting to mimic it and recreate it. But I hope there's a little bit more to her than that. I will say on a purely shallow level, I said this before that we turned the mics on in the brief bit that you see of her as Marilyn, I'm okay with Anna de Armas. Well, she gets the mannerisms down fairly well, but not just the voice. But they show a, a split second shot of her doing the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend number. And we wrote about that when we wrote about the costume. And one of the things about that number, about Marilyn in that number, is how larger than life she is, how big her movements are. And in the split second you see her on screen, it's like, well, she gets that. I can see right. that. She gets that Marilyn on screen is just huge, just big, literally big. Yeah. Well, the story is that uh, Ana de Armas uh, study and watched and, and read everything she could get her hands on. Uh, and that she perfected as much as she could. Um, so I can see that. And, and she looks great. I mean, uh, par- uh, the story is that they, they spent like three hours every day, every morning, and hair and makeup, so, yeah. And that's the shallow thing I wanted to say, is that um, so many times when Marilyn is portrayed on film, even by some of the best portrayals or the actresses best suited to play her, they almost never get Marilyn's makeup right. And as a as a gay, that always drove me crazy. Um, 
because Marilyn's makeup, her face, right. how it is applied is so distinct to her and so very much part of her persona, part of her drag. If you don't get that winged eye exactly right, if you don't get the the shading on her lid exactly right or the arc of her eyebrow exactly right, you're not getting Marilyn. Right. Um, uh, so they do. I got to say, the drag uh, is flawless. They actually she do. Looks, she looks great. The yeah, makeup is dead on. The wig. And that's the other thing. Sometimes they don't get the hair right with Marilyn, but it all looks correct to me. None of this speaks to the how good the film is. I'm just, it's just, it was the buzzy little story of the week. Um, it's intriguing to see another take on Marilyn. And yes, Anna de Armas in that split second shut me, shut up my, you know, doubts, at least for that split second. Well, yeah, I can I, buy her. Right. I had the same reaction when I saw that um, teaser for uh, Spencer. Spencer, exactly. I felt the same way. I was like, this is not enough. I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited now, but it's not enough. Um, but you know, and then I fell in love with the movie. So. Right, and that was not a perfect mimicry, nor was it. Um, nor does Kristen Stewart look exactly like her. Right, it's just a good um, take. It was the same thing with Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy. Didn't look anything like her, but um, they, she got the character down correctly, and, and it, the look was correct. Right. And I think it should be more about that, getting the uh, a persona, character, or whatever you want to call yeah. it. Right. Well, she's like crying in front of a makeup mirror. I so I don't know. I mean, I get it. Like Marilyn, you can't, you can't do a purely triumphant take on right. Marilyn if you're looking at the whole of her life. However, I would love it if someone did a movie that just looked at some portion of right. Marilyn's where she was on top and felt great. Yeah. Same thing with like Judy Garland or like you know, you can do versions of their stories where they were sailing on top, where they were had it all, everything was going on just right in their right. life. Uh, I I did cringe a little with the, uh, with the um, crying, but then when she gets to the, when she's laughing, I mean it's just she just nails it. She it's nails like it. well, all yeah. right, that is Marilyn. Yeah, she got I it. Agree. She got it just right. So um, we'll see. I mean, that's coming out in September, and you know us. We'll probably be all over the costumes and all that sort of thing. I Absolutely. could write a book on that pink satin gown <laughs> from know. Diamonds Are Girls' Best Friends. So. We'll see. The other related story of the week before we get to our interview with Amy oh, O'Dell yeah. is um, uh, everyone's been, they're still talking about Kim Kardashian <laughs> wearing Marilyn's point. dress. I'm sorry, what? Which was the point. Yeah, that was the point. Um, in fact, Amy says that in our interview with her that, you know, part of the, re- I mean, it was a PR coup for everyone involved, everyone. including the Mecala and Anna Winter in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, so pictures of the dress on display at Ripley's came out this week from a random, as far as I can tell, random social media user. And it seems to show a lot of wear and tear and damage on the dress. Um, sequins are missing. There's pulls in the fabric and that sort of thing. Ripley's. Uh, so of course this exploded all over again. Big brouhaha. People are very upset about it. Ripley's came out with a statement that said, actually, that's, the, the dress is fine. There was no damage to the dress. She only wore it for a few seconds and blah, blah, blah. We took all the precautions. And then they pointed to like the notes from the auction that described the dress when they bought it and noted that there were sequins missing and pulls in right. the fabric already at the time. I mean, I, I really hate to be in a position where I'm defending Ripley's or Kim here because I think they were both extremely in the wrong to have this to do this. However, um, I also find it nearly impossible to believe that a dress that old and that fragile 
was in perfect condition. Um, Vanessa Friedman, who is fashion columnist at the New York Times, she wrote a piece today. It was a very, very skeptical piece. Um, skeptical of all the criticism. It, it very much took Ripley's right. and Kim's side. So I, I don't entirely agree with everything she was saying in this piece. Um, but she did point out certain things, like the lore behind the dress is that Marilyn had to be sewn into the dress. Every piece about that, you know, every auction piece, every, ent- you know, wiki entry about that dress, every story told about that dress is Marilyn had to be sewn into the dress. It was so tight right. that she couldn't even wear underwear. And her point is, well, then how did she get it off without damaging it? There's no way that dress wasn't damaged from the time she took it off. Right. And, so and then 60 years went by, and it wasn't exactly kept in a museum case that whole time. So right. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to be defending Kim no, here. I understand. Uh, and I, I do agree with, with all that because, yeah, I mean, sometimes you buy something and it's selling unto you. And then, you know, it's not like Marilyn was thinking, oh, my God, I have to save this. Exactly. This, this is going to be historical. They're going to talk about this. This could have been on the floor in her closet yeah, for a like, year. Oh, well, she died like less than a yeah, year she, later. She, she could just she could have just said, you know, take the thing off. <laughs> right. And then, you know, forget about it. Uh, I can see that. But I, I, I can also see causing more damage to it. Of course. Uh by wearing something that is not your is size. Is that fragile, actually. And it's not your size. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I'm not suggesting that she could not possibly have caused damage to it. But in the telling of this tale, in the indignant telling of this tale, people are acting like this was some hermetically sealed gown that was in perfect condition before she got to it. And that's not true. Right. I agree with all that. And the pictures, they, well, you, I mean, you're looking at pictures online and, and then you're comparing their side by side, uh, allegedly the before and after. But again, it's, it's, I don't know the provenance of those pictures. Not a hundred percent. Not right. really. We don't know if those pictures are true. We don't know if the, if the person, uh, doctor, the pictures like to if make it's it, the same dress. Yeah, like even to make look like it, right. it you know it, the damage worse than, than it actually is again it sounds like we're defending kim and i no, i'm no, just no, no, trying no, no. to look at, at this whole because uh again i'll restate my point that we made when we devoted an entire podcast to this last month um she never should have done it yes uh the only reason she was allowed to do it was because of her, the level of her fame and she probably made it oh well i know she made a donation to some charities but i can't imagine she didn't make a donation to ripley's itself so it was money and fame that allowed her to do something that she should not have been allowed to do however ultimately that blame goes on ripley's who is a bad custodian for something this culturally important after we did our last podcast about this dress uh someone who follows us on social media tagged us and showed us pictures of when the dress was touring canadian supermarkets (laughs) um and she went and took pictures of it and this was after ripley's bought it because apparently the the uh, ripley's guy the guy who owns ripley is canadian so he had it like touring Canada at supermarkets. Like this was the level of care that was yeah. being given to this dress. Like not that, a lot. Showing that birthday to bought mitzvah. You know? So <laughs> again, That's crazy. Not defending Kim because I think it's gross what she did, but ultimately every blame goes on to Ripley's for they're just a absolutely, bad custodian, absolutely. and you have to wonder about a system that allows dresses that, that if you feel that this dress is so culturally important well it never should have slipped through the cracks and someone other than ripley sh- like the met should have gotten hold of that dress right. before it got into their hands everyone knew exactly what they were doing which was 
getting publicity. Yeah, getting even Anna Winter, as you'll hear in our interview with Amy. Every single person. Uh, Amy O'Dell wrote a uh, newsletter about the, the dress, and she makes the point of, you know, people are wearing, celebrities are wearing more vintage, and I get that. I get all that. She even credits Kim to, uh, to that trend. Uh, Yes, but... To a certain extent. To a certain extent. But celebrities have been wearing... I know, but Kim was breaking out the Mugler and the Gautier. No, the thing is, whatever that woman does, it you all of her. a sudden is... <laughs> it was never done before. Kim Kardashian is doing... Oh my God, this Lorenzo is yeah, red whatever. hot. There is flames uh, coming out of his headphones right now. The thing is that I, I agree and I understand and I think it's great that people are wearing vintage uh, clothes, right. I, garments. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I think that's absolutely fantastic. But the point is... Sorry, that was that, my phone. Yes. Yeah. But the point is, um, when... Well, let's... And Amy O'Dell, I, I don't want to take credit here. She she mentioned um, Zendaya wearing... Um, uh, Bob Mackie. A Bob Mackie dress. And that uh, Laura, Laura Roach, Roach her stylist, had exclusive access to Bob Mackie's archive. And he went He there. also has a large vintage collection he that has, he owns. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, the difference here is going through dresses, vintage dress, and they say, okay, I'm going to, uh, let's try them and see which one fits me. As opposed to, God damn it, I need to wear this dress. I'm going to do whatever I can. Right. Uh, no, and that's I mean, a difference here. There's also a difference between vintage dresses that, you know, was part of a collection from 22 years ago and a dress with historical exactly, and cultural exactly, significance exactly. like that. Right. This is not just a vintage dress. It is a one-of-a-kind one dress that is... Uh, ha it literally has a place in history. It is as iconic as a dress actually can possibly be. Right, right. So there's importance that is layered onto this dress. I don't expect someone like Kim Kardashian to understand that. No. On the other hand, she understands it well enough that she knew how much of a light it was going to shine on her. So she did understand that. It's someone with a lot of power and 613 million followers on who Instagram. Who gets to do whatever she wants. Who gets to, who who says, I want to wear that dress. And, and Ripley says, sure. Yeah. Uh, and that's the bottom line here. And if she cares about the dress, what happens to the dress later, I doubt very much. Uh, she got what she wanted with a lot of attention. Ripley's also, everybody, the Met Gala, everyone involved. So... Quite frankly, I don't think any of these people give a shit about the dress at this point. No, I don't think they do. They don't. I don't think Anna they does. Don't. Nobody I don't does. Think... No. Nobody does. Uh, film historians and fashion right. historians. Well, that's different. Those people are because, upset. Because that's their job to preserve things. Yeah, uh, I, I no. agree. And I agree with all of them for being upset, for sounding that alarm. Because, uh, and this is something Amy says in her newsletter, that, you know, there's a there's a precedent being set here. Right. So um, before other stars get yes, this yes. idea that they should go out and start wearing these iconic dresses, it's good that there's an outcry against it. Um, the only thing be, that's yeah. insulating Kim from this outcry is the level of followers that she has. The the appalling part of all this conversation, and we'll, we'll keep it short, is the fact it's there's a difference wearing vintage, as I said before, and trying dresses and say, okay, I fit. This is perfect. I'm not going to damage this piece. As opposed to, oh my God, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to even wear this thing open. Yeah. With uh, the back open. With the back open. I don't care. I just want that for a picture because her life is all about pictures. It's one image. There he goes. Her life is based on one image only. She got the picture. And that's it. End of story. Yes, I agree.
Um, but if nothing else, it pro- both of these tales uh, prove the enduring legacy right. and mystique of Marilyn Monroe. She is never going away, that one. She's always going to be a figure of fascination. Right. I totally agree. Uh, and now another figure of fascination yes. is Anna Wintour herself. And even if you're not a big fashion follower or... Um, uh, you don't know that much about her. Uh, please stay tuned and listen to this interview because there's a lot of interesting stuff about Anna's place in I the agree. culture, her place in the publishing world. Yes. And um, if you strip away all the idiosyncrasies idiosyncrasies of how she lives her life or runs her business, she's still um, one of the most powerful and influential CEOs in the history of American business. Like. You cannot take that away. As from a her. woman, we can't. We can't yeah. forget that. I mean, no matter what you think about her, that's important. Yes. So, coming up after the break is our inter- interview with Amy O'Dell, author of Anna: The Biography. Kittens, we are thrilled to have as our guest today, Amy O'Dell. She is a fashion journalist of many years' experience. She was the editor of Cosmopolitan.com for many years. She helped launch the Cut. Um, uh, New York Magazine's fashion blog, and also um, BuzzFeed Fashion. In 2015, she was the author of the book, Tales from the Back Row. And this, she's here with us today to talk about her new book, Anna, the Biography. If you know anything about us, if you've been listening to us for any length of time, I don't think we need to tell you who the last name is on that Anna, but in case you didn't know, it's the biography of Anna Winter. Anna, I mean, Amy, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting because as soon as I got the book, I started reading and I couldn't put it down, literally. I mean, you know, people say that all the time, but I'm, I'm telling you, I was like, I have to work, but I have to read one more chapter. Um, it was just <laughs> it was just fascinating. And what I love about it is that it I wouldn't even call it uh, that you have gossips. I would say juicy details, you know, a lot of facts. And, and it, it feels like a conversation, but at the same time, you give a facts you're giving you know stories that were actually confirmed and i i I absolutely love that i have so i have read so many books about anna wintour and and stories and so on and this is just like having a conversation with someone who has facts and information about her thank you so much i'm so happy to hear you say that because i've been really excited to see this book called the definitive biography about anna wintour um and I wanted it to feel that way when I was writing it, but I also knew that the book had to entertain. And I think people have this idea that biography can be dry or boring or, um, you know, overly academic. And I think that this book is a reference book and there is important information in here from a fashion history perspective. But yes, it is also, it's entertainment. Books are entertainment at the end of the day. And as I don't have to tell both of you, but as we know, fashion is entertainment. Exactly. Uh, I just want to jump in. We're going to get into the how and the why and the how you went about the book. But I, I just want to back up what Lorenzo said there is that um, there's lots of fun little stories about Anna, and and in many ways it confirms what a lot of people, their preconceptions about who Anna is, but at the same time, the book really places Anna in a much larger picture. Uh, and, and one of the things we've talked about on this uh, podcast when we've talked about Anna Winter is that, you know, it's easy to roll your eyes at some of the stories and some of the idiosyncrasies, but at the end of the day, she's an extraordinarily powerful figure 
in a billion dollar industry and she has stayed at the top of it for decades. And I think your book is great about straddling that line of telling you all the funny little stories about what she likes to eat for lunch or how she treats her, her you know, assistants, but also places her in this much larger system. Absolutely. She is a business leader whose success is, as you said, really unmatched. I mean, when I was interviewing people, they compared her cultural relevance to that of Steve Jobs. Mm. And people can debate whether or not they agree with that. But I don't think it's an accident that names like that come up in relation to her. And if you look at her longevity, just the tenure that she's had at Vogue, 34 years, that in itself is extraordinary. Um, You know, Jeff Bezos ran Amazon for 27 years. Right. So, yes, it is extremely unusual for someone to be in a position of power like that for such an extraordinary length of time. Uh, I know you've written a lot about fashion and, you know, your fashion expertise at this point. Uh, But how did you decide to write about such a massive? I mean, how did you decide to take on such a massive project to write about someone like Anna Wintour? I mean, that's intimidating just just to think about it. Yeah, it's absolutely intimidating from the perspective of the subject uh, who intimidates many people, as we know, but also the sheer amount of work that is required to do a good job. Uh, so I started work on the book in 2018. I got a call uh, from my literary agent saying that my publisher was interested in finding someone to write a biography about her the day before I went to labor with my son. So I'll never forget it. And I sort of got a shiver up my spine as soon as she said that this is what they were looking for. Because Anna is someone who has had a public position for so long, longer than the 34 years that she's been at Vogue. Yet, despite that, she has remained a mystery, even to people who know her. And I talked to more than 250 people to write this book, many of whom had never spoken at length on the record about her before, and many of whom who know her very, very well. So I felt like we hadn't heard from those people, and there was a real opportunity to explain who Anna really is as a person and to humanize her as a bit because she had been so dehumanized over the course of her career and so much of the coverage of her. Yeah, it's it's true. And I, I actually joke with, with uh, Tom and I said, you know, Amy is serving the tea, but she's also presenting the tea bags to you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you have the receipts for every fact you have, you know, have all the information correct. Uh, I just want to ask, why do you think that is that um, Anna's image is so locked down and so inscrutable? How much of that is her and how much of that is a mystique that people sort of layer onto her? I think it's both, actually. But I, you know, what I learned about her is that she she just doesn't talk about herself, (laughs) which is one reason it's so hard to write a book about her because she's not out there, you know, talking to her friends about what she's doing at work. She's not even at work talking about what she's doing at work. It was so hard for me to confirm actually that she did in fact provide fashion advice to Hillary Clinton in the nineties when she was first lady. You know, I talked Mm -hmm. to so many people who you would think would know the answer to that question who didn't know the answer to that question. That's crazy. Um, it ultimately, I did confirm it, but, you know, that's just how she operates. Like, when she's in the office, she's conducting business. She's really not gossiping. I mean, people say that sometimes she likes to gossip, but she's not getting bogged down in it. Um, you know, and I, I describe in the book how a meeting with Anna, it's going to be 
10 minutes, maybe 15, but that's it. She's not sitting there wasting away and having long conversations and think tanks about things. And I think that, you know, part of that is just her nature, that she's a very efficient woman yeah, uh, and that she doesn't want to talk about herself a lot. And that plays very well in corporate America. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was just about to ask, do you think there is a lesson to be learned in her managerial style or is it just too idiosyncratic to her? I think certain things can be taken away. Like, you know, I think anybody who's worked in an office knows that, you know, it's it's easier to not be friends with your subordinates. You know, right. I had people describe to me how they would be at a Vogue event with her and they'd be laughing and having a great time and a very normal, easy conversation. And then they'd see her in the elevator the next day and she wouldn't talk to them. And it was as though everything that happened the previous night never happened. Mm. I do think uh, that 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 is helpful if you're in a in a position of authority, if you're the boss, because it's hard to manage people. And there's so many studies about this and so much has been written about this, but it's hard to manage people if you're very, very close to them. And we see where that, you know, that was hard for her. Like with Andre Leon Talley, they, they had a close relationship, but it was so difficult for Andre because she wasn't communicative and they would have moments, you know, where they would act like very close friends with one another. But then there would be moments where he felt like he didn't matter to her at all. Mm. That, that's interesting. Now, how did you get people to talk? I mean, that is like, you know, a major accomplishment right there. It was really, really hard. <laughs> um, and biographers always say this, but it was, it was extraordinarily difficult. And in the beginning, I actually, I thought I might not even get this done. Because weeks would go by where I would be sending out requests or calling, cold calling people and asking people to talk to me and just getting shut down. And in the beginning, you know, when I had, a, I had nothing to say to people, like I couldn't say, oh, I've interviewed 50 people, I've interviewed 100 people. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like people were just sort of so dismissive in a way, you know, like, oh, this girl thinks she's going to, you know, do this. Uh, <laughs> and I had, I kind of had one of two reactions, I guess. One reaction, this was definitely more common in the beginning, was Anna is going to do everything in her power to shut you down, uh, including making threats to your publisher that Conde Nast will never publicize any of their books ever again. And then there were a few other people who said, you know, maybe they had worked with Anna, they liked her, they respected her, and they had a more reasonable attitude, and they said, I'm sure that she will help you. And the second group of people turned out to be right. After I had worked on the book for a year to a year and a half, I did hear from Anna's office. They got wind of the fact that I was writing the book. And I explained to them that I was writing it from the perspective of this is a woman in a very unique position of power and who has been in her job for a unique length of time. And after we had that conversation, uh, they sent over a list of close friends and colleagues for me to interview about her. And it was kind of a staggering list because the names were like Serena Williams and Tom Ford and Tori Burke wow. and also, uh, you know, Vogue colleagues like Hamish Bowles. And I asked for her to sign off on me talking to some other people who I knew were, were close to her. And she said yes to every person I uh, sought permission for. But that said, the vast majority of the book did not come about 
because of that, uh, a lot of it was <laughs> through, you know, just my own fighting, fighting my way through it, fighting for all of these interviews. Uh, I, I have to say, I got your book and I start reading it. And, and my my I, I could not believe like it's in the first page of the book, you talk about uh, about Anna crying. And I'm like, all right, I've never read any book, anything about this. Let me just go and read the whole thing. I mean, it's such a, a hell of a way to to open the book. I mean, congratulations. I'm like, all right, this is the book. This is it. Nothing else. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I spent a long time, probably years, thinking about what the introduction was going to be, because you know that you need an anecdote to get people hooked on your book right away. Right. And you need to surprise people and have extraordinary detail. So I worked very hard <laughs> to just confirm all of the details of that meeting. And, and the introduction, for those who haven't read the book, is about how the day after the 2016 election, you know, bring yourself back to that day for, I assume, us and many people listening to that podcast. That was a very difficult day yes. after a very difficult night. And, uh, you know, the Vogue, for the Vogue staff, it was no different. And Anna has been a, a Democratic fundraiser for many years and had thrown her weight and Vogue's weight behind Hillary Clinton. So it's a searing loss for the people on this staff as well. And, you know, they had also been up late trying to figure out how they're going to cover this election, uh, which defied expectations for their audiences. So they're up late, they're upset, they're thinking about their coverage. And then early the next morning, they get a call saying, you know, you got to get to the office because Anna's going to have an all-hands meeting. And so they all drag themselves to the office and everyone looks terrible. Remember how, how it felt on this day. I will yeah. never forget it. Um Everyone feels terrible. They look terrible. Anna comes in looking flawless, like she always does, in a printed dress, mm. you know, hair immaculate, sunglasses, everything. And she gives them, like, she tries to motivate them and give them a rallying speech, you know, like, this happened, but we have to keep going forward, which is very much her attitude about everything. And in giving this speech, she she cries. You know, it's not like she's sobbing, but her voice cracks, and she's clearly crying. Um and this is, you know, she's not someone who shows vulnerability. She's not someone who shows emotion. So this is a really unusual moment. And also brought together, um, you know, a lot of things that are interesting about her, like the way she leads. Um, you know, it allowed me to say what she has for breakfast because she gets to her office and she has a whole milk latte and a, a blueberry muffin from Starbucks waiting for her. Um but then also, you know, like, what does she do after this meeting? She goes and she invites Donald Trump to come to Conde Nast to have an off-the-record discussion with editors-in-chief, and that meeting was very controversial. So she's someone who, you know, she's just full of contradiction, and yeah. I thought this was a really interesting example of that. It was a perfect example, and one of the things that it touches on, that your book touches on quite a bit, is how big her uh, influence is, even outside the world of fashion. Uh, as you talked, you mentioned she's like this big Democratic bundler. She's very involved. She's been involved in Democratic politics for a long time, at least on the margins of it. And then you, there's stories in the book about, you know, Hugh Jackman consulting her before doing, you know, uh, what is it, The Greatest Showman or, or Bradley, yeah. Bradley Cooper consulting her before A Star is Born. And I don't think people realize what until, you know, unless you read this book. What an influence she is on the culture in ways that, you know, go way beyond what walks down a runway or what shows up at the Met Gala. Exactly. Because she's not talking about it. 
But yes, she's doing that kind of consulting. It's like informal consulting, I guess, or advising um, important people all the time. Um, and then another example I gave in the book is I spoke to Serena Williams and she said that when she was struggling with tennis, she called Anna and she couldn't remember the exact advice Anna gave her, but she said that whatever Anna said enabled her to go on to win Wimbledon. And I found that to be That's insane. No, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely insane. I, I was so surprised by that. Uh, one of the things I love about your book is that you really talk about her upbringing in, in London and, and if, if you don't know anything about Anna and her upbringing in London, you're missing a lot uh, trying to understand who she is and how she conducts herself uh, as a professional uh, you know, business uh, woman. Uh, I, I love the whole, all the details about her, her father influencing her a lot. Uh, was there anything that surprised you or any eye-opener? Oh, so much surprised me about Anna. You know, one of the one of the biggest surprises that I learned through reporting the book is that Anna wants to be remembered for her philanthropy rather than anything she's done as an editor. Uh, of course, probably the most important example of her philanthropy is the Met Gala, which is basically the Super Bowl of red carpets, I think you can safely say, probably the most important internationally recognized red carpet event of the year. Mm. Uh, and she's raised more than $250 million for the Costume Institute through that event. And I think that where that may come from is her mom's side of the family. So her mom uh, was a, a society girl, really. She is from the Northeast. Uh, she went to college at Radcliffe. And her father was a professor at Harvard Law School, and he was a lawyer who specialized in trusts. And he set up a trust fund that benefited Anna's mom and Anna and her siblings uh, after Anna's mom's mom died. And that certainly gave Anna a leg up. But anyway, <laughs> so Anna's mom, after trying journalism, and she did things like reviewing movies, and television shows, and she wrote some articles uh, when she was in college and things like that. So after dabbling in that, she ultimately decides uh, to become a social worker. And she uh, helped pregnant teens uh, find adoptive parents for their babies. And she was very, very devoted to it. Both of her parents worked a lot. Her father was an editor at the Evening Standard. And Anna talks in interviews about her dad all the time and how he influenced her. She does not she has almost never talked about her mom, very, very little. And uh, friends told me, though, that she seemed to be actually closer with her mom than with her dad. So I found that to be surprising. And I'm just guessing that her, you know, her social conscience, uh, that seems to directly stem from her mother. That that's Yeah, that's quite interesting. I also think that if you know a little bit about her history, her background, and you can find that in the book uh, is how she, she has mentioned several times how she uh, her family her, her siblings always thought that what she does you know never respect what she does um, never respected what she does or or she felt like she wasn't doing something you know as important as her father do you think that has um, that she kind of used that or that she sort of like 
had to work harder or had to prove herself throughout her career because of that, because she, she never felt like she had the respect of her family. Absolutely. Absolutely. People did describe how she seemed to feel like an outcast who wasn't taken seriously because her family was so academic. You know, both of her parents went to prestigious colleges. Her siblings went to prestigious colleges and then pursued, um, did not pursue anything in fashion or close to it. Uh, so she was definitely the outlier and perhaps even the outcast for that reason. But it also, you know, her interest in fashion in this family, it also seemed to be like a way of her, a way for her to distinguish herself and to stand out because she's also someone who, as we know from her, from her persona, from her iconic persona, she's someone who likes to stand out. Uh, so I guess I don't necessarily see it so much as like, um, like a sadness about that. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. that, she, that she was different from her family and had different interests from her family. Uh, you know, I think that she's also, I think she was also supported particularly by her dad in, um, her fashion magazine career. And I think that she liked that it made her stand out. That's true. So lucky for us, you have an entire chapter dedicated to the Met Gala, and I was very happy with that. Um, and among many things you say that people don't know about the Met Gala, you say that it, that's kind of a myth that Anna Wintour approves everything? Yeah, so she approves, forgive me, I can't remember the exact percentage that I put in the book, she approves like most of it. The vast majority of it she does approve, but um, I think it was Andre who said to me, I, I interviewed him before he died, I think he said, you know, I don't know that Rihanna is necessarily going to call her, that Jennifer Lopez is going <laughs> to call her and say, you know, is this okay or what do you think of this? Um, it sounded to me, based on many conversations and asking many people this question, what, you know, what does she approve? And I did talk to Stephanie winston Wolkoff, who planned the gala for more than a decade, Um but it sounds like, you know, she she will approve a lot of it. Um, I'm sure that she knew what Kim Kardashian, you know, everyone's talking about Kim Kardashian and uh, <laughs> the Marilyn Monroe dress this week. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that she knew that that was going to happen uh, and probably liked that that was such a big, would be such a big media moment. Um but yeah, she does not approve everything. And the other thing is the Vogue staff goes to the event and they work in the event and Vogue sets up a um, sort of a newsroom for them in the basement so that they can cover it all live. It's a huge, huge production. It's almost like CNN or something. And uh, like Anna's not approving everything that they wear. She'll have a staff member approve what the staff wears. Now, since you mentioned Kim Kardashian, now we're going to have to talk about Kim Kardashian. It's interesting because we went from um, Kim Kardashian being literally cut out of the picture, <laughs> attending the Met Gala on the on the Vogue site, to having the entire family get invited this time. Um, so it, it's an interesting evolution. Uh, do you think uh, Anna Wintour was kind of forced to do that, or do you think she now understands that you know she has to change? The magazine has to change. Yes, I think she was forced into it because of the culture, but the way it was described to me, I mean, I think that 
we can remember when Kim was first on the cover of Vogue. That was 2014, I believe, pegged to her wedding to Kanye West. Uh, and she had attended the Met Gala for the first time, I think, in 2013. Uh, and those were really big deals, particularly the cover of Vogue. And it's funny, you know, in researching that moment today, people were saying boycott Vogue on Twitter and were really, really mad about it. And it sort of seemed like a classism um, for which now people <laughs> are very upset that Vogue has had for so long. Um, but yeah, you know, why did she have Kim Kardashian on the cover because she realized in a meeting with Grace Coddington, she had suggested that Grace do a shoot inspired by Kim and Kanye. And Grace Coddington didn't usually shoot the celebrities. She did like the couture sort of right. fantasy type shoots for the magazine. Um, and Grace Coddington just says, well, why should I get, you know, actors from Saturday Night Live to play them when I can just, if we can just get the real people, and of course, you know, it's Vogue, so they could get the real people. And Grace Coddington ends up doing that shoot. And she told me, I thought this was kind of funny, but she told me that she didn't even like it at the end of the day. She thought it was expected and normal. Hmm. Um, and she she said there was one image that she liked, but the rest of it she found to be a bit boring. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's just kind of an example of Anna kind of realizing, well, you know, this is something that we can't ignore. And she knew that it was going to be controversial, but she did it anyway. And that's kind of, and that's why I'm kind of wondering, you know, with the current uh, controversy over Kim wearing the Marilyn Monroe dress, like, was this another instance of Anna knowing, you know, this is going to be controversial, uh, but it's going to generate a lot of press and conversation around the Met Gala. I mean, we're still talking about the Met Gala six weeks later because of this. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, that's um, exactly what you know. we said after after it first erupted on this podcast. We said the same thing. It was like, at the end of the day, this will be one of the most talked about Met Gala dresses probably for decades to come. And exactly. And I, I don't think Anna, I, in fact, I know Anna probably is not unaware of that. So I agree with you. I think she knew that this was how it was going to play out. Yeah, and same thing with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez last year, wearing the Aurora right. James dress that attacks the rich. People talked about that for a long time. I mean, they still bring it up. Yeah. But Anna understands how to create those moments. And, you know, I give early earlier examples in the book. For instance, in 1989, when she has Madonna on the cover for the first time. Now it sounds really normal to have Madonna on the cover of Vogue, you know, why wouldn't you? But at that time, models were on the cover of Vogue. It was really unusual to have a celebrity. And Madonna in 1989, I mean, think about what she meant at that time. Right. Uh, like a Prayer had just come out. That was a very controversial music video. I know it sounds wild to say these things today. <laughs> um, but she was controversial at the time. And Anna makes a decision to put her on the cover anyway. And the issue does really, really well, even if it is controversial. That, and even if not, everybody approves. That's a very good point because, I mean, we see that on our site. Every time you post a cover with a motto, the response is not the same as if we have a cover with a celebrity. Uh, she really changed the industry, the way, you know, you, you look at magazines or, or how you become interested or not, on a, you know, in a cover or a magazine because there is a celebrity there now. So you have to read the article. You're going to buy the magazine. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I had a lot to do with that shift. Um, 
one thing, I mean, a lot of people were basically introduced to Anna uh, because of the movie uh, the, the Devil's Wear Prada. I mean, a lot of, I mean, even friends, people we know, they talk about Anna now because of the movie. It's fascinating. Um, how much, based on all your research, obviously, how much do you, how much is, is actually true of her behavior, the way she, you know, conducts herself in the office and, and, and the business? Yeah, well, The Devil Wears Prada is a great movie. I've personally loved watching it over the years, but it's a really one-dimensional portrait of a woman who is really complicated. And there are some things that are blatantly inaccurate, like when Miranda Priestley comes in and she throws her bag on the desk. Mm. You know, Anna's not coming in and throwing her bag at her assistant. But other things are are accurate. Like when Anna shows up to the office every day and people are really nervous and want everything to be perfect for her, that is true. I had people describe to me how, you know, they'd be in an elevator and Anna would get in or they'd be walking the halls of Condé Nast and Anna would come by. And then people <laughs> like, press themselves up against the wall in fear. Like they have a physical reaction to her. We do have... The funny... Go ahead. Well, the funny thing is that Anna seems to really just want to be treated like a normal person. Um, You know, I think one person told me it's just kind of embarrassing when that happens. But I had people who worked for her say, you know, we would have meetings with her and we would always make sure an assistant was holding the door open. And one day she told us, you don't have to have an assistant open the door for me. I can just open the door myself. (laughs) That's interesting. We we do have some personal stories, have funny stories because we we used to uh, attend the um, Oscar de la Renta show. We don't, I mean, we haven't been you know to a we haven't been to fashion week in yeah, years. In actually. years, but uh, mm-hmm. back then we went to a, an Oscar de la Renta show, and I was, you know, how you know with the Oscar de la Renta show, you have to get on the lav- ele- elevator and you have to wait, and it you know it was it was a pain in the ass. This was when it was at his studio, um, but. We, it was the end of the show, and I'm looking at something on my phone. I'm not paying attention to anything, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm waiting for the elevator. The door opens, and I'm still looking at my phone or something. And then I get on the elevator, and Tom was like, No, 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 and a winter waits on the elevator. Yeah, he get- hopped on the elevator within a winter, <laughs> and I had to yank him off so quickly. <laughs> you know, one of those stories, like, Oh my god, I, I maybe I'm not allowed here. Uh, type of thing because of the myth created about her. Uh, you know, you, that's how you behave around her. Right. And I had a lot of people, particularly assistants, say they didn't know where that stuff came from because it wasn't like Anna ever said that to them. You know, it right. would come from the first assistant, like you can't get on the elevator with her. <laughs> um I think that you can, like, <laughs> I, no one ever said, like, you can't get on the elevator with her. Uh, I'm sure it annoys her if she has to wait when she's right. on the elevator, but you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it is just sort of grandfathered into her image in a way uh, that this is how this is how we must behave and act around her. But it's unclear, like, if that came from her. I did ask people one very good question (laughs) with certain people was, what are her pet peeves? And I can say with authority that she has explicitly expressed how much she dislikes when people chew gum around her. (laughs) Oh, good to know. Which is not one that I knew, you know, I'd heard about the elevator, but the gum, I I don't remember that coming up. That's funny. So after spending pretty much three years, correct, uh, uh, 
thinking in a 24-7, thinking about Anna 24-7. Um, and there's people still talk about Anna Wintour as the most, you know, powerful woman in the world. Uh, is, is she still, do you think so? Is she the most powerful woman in fashion? Yeah, um, let's say the fashion world, yes. Yes, I believe, I believe that she is, absolutely. Uh, and going into this, assignment, I wondered if, I wondered if that was the case. I think I really thought that it wasn't. Um, and, you know, partly because media has changed so much. Like, if you want to know about fashion today, you don't need Vogue. Uh, you right. can go on Instagram, you can go on TikTok. There's so many ways to read about or learn about fashion. Uh, so you would think that that would kind of shake her position a little bit. But Vogue, what Vogue does is still relevant. You know, when a Vogue cover comes out, people do talk about it. People analyze it. Right. Um, and I guess it's really Vogue and British Vogue. I'm thinking about British Vogue because the Beyonce cover. I know. Uh, I was just thinking the same morning. thing. <laughs> um, but American Vogue, too. You know, what Anna does for American Vogue, people people do talk about it. And she does oversee British Vogue at the end of the day. And her role is a uh, global global content director, global content advisor for Vogue at Conde Nast. Um, but also she's doing all of this behind the scenes that we, uh, behind the scenes advising that we talked about, like when Bradley Cooper wants her to read the script for A Star is Born before he casts Lady Gaga, or when Hugh Jackman says, you know, come listen to my pitch on A Greatest Showman. You know, there's so much of that going on, yeah. in addition to executives at fashion houses asking who they should hire. And I had someone tell me, you know, her inbox is like page six, and that, you know, this person could not think of a single fashion designer appointment that she wasn't involved in. And I was also surprised to learn that she was involved in appointments, not even at that creative director, head designer level, but even like head accessories designer uh Tori Birch told me that when she was looking for a lead accessories designer, she reached out to Anna and her office put together a list of names for her. Wow. Like this is really extraordinary, extraordinary influence. Yeah. And I think only Anna knows really exactly everything that she's touching because she doesn't talk about it. Now, uh, one final question. Um, you are probably the greatest living expert on Anna Winter at this point. So what do you think is ahead of her? Like, how much longer do you think she's going to stay in this position? And um, is she going to seek something out after she leaves Vogue, if she ever does? Yeah, so Anna is 72 years old. She turned 73 in November. Um, the... So the woman who edited Vogue for the longest <laughs> was Edna Woolman Chase. And she was at Vogue, I think, 38 years. Mm. So Anna is not the longest server, longest serving editor-in-chief yet. It would be extraordinary if she becomes the longest serving editor-in-chief if she stays another three or four years. And Edna Woolman Chase also retired at age 75. So I also think it would be extraordinary if Anna stays past the age of 75 that this is really me drawing on precedent. And there's a lot of questions about what's going to happen to Vogue when Anna leaves. I think these are good questions. I don't think it's going to be quite the same. But I will say this. I do think that Anna will be succeeded because what has historically happened with Vogue editor successions 
is that the fashion industry has basically been asked to fall in line behind a new leader. The editor-in-chief of Vogue has been the leader of the fashion industry, really, since Edna Woolman Chase, who edited it in the early 1900s. So this is 100 years of precedent that I, I don't see coming undone when Anna leaves, even though, obviously, so, so much has changed in media and in fashion. Um, but the fashion industry is going to have to fall in line behind the new editor, and I think that it will, because that's what it's done every other time in the past. And we see this even with other editor-in-chief successions. Uh, Typically, brands fall in line behind the new editor. So I do think she will be succeeded. Uh, You know, it's not going to be the same as when she was, she succeeded Grace Mirabelle in 1988. But I do think that the, the torch will be passed. And all Anna has said to friends about what she wants to do after Vogue or after Condé Nast, I should say, since she basically runs all the editorial properties, uh, is that maybe she will get paid for her advice instead of giving it away for free. And I should also add, her friends say that she surely, surely has a plan for her exit, but like with many other things that she does, she's not talking about it. (laughs) Well, uh, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time today. This was actually a fantastic eye-opening interview. You're a great subject. And uh, i telling all our listeners out there, you should pick up this book, Anna, the biography by Amy O'Dell. It is fabulous. Absolutely amazing book. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. As longtime fans of yours, I Aww. am so excited. <laughs> so excited to be uh, on the show. And I love also following you guys on Twitter. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Thank I love that you just, because I find Twitter to be a difficult place to be. And I just love when you guys just tell it like it is. It, it really gives me life. So. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.